Get them under the word, and who knoweth what may be the result. Oh, what a blessing it would be to you if you heard that what you could not do, for you could scarcely speak for Christ, was done by your pastor, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through your inducing one to come within gunshot of the gospel. Next to that, soul winners, try after sermon to talk to strangers. The preacher may have missed the mark, but you need not miss it. Or the preacher may have struck the mark, and you can help to make the impression deeper by a kind word. I recollect several persons joining the church who traced their conversion to the ministry in the Shuri Music Hall, but who said it was not that alone, but another agency cooperating therewith. They were fresh from the country, and some good man, I knew him well, I think he is in heaven now, met them at the gate, spoke to them, said he hoped that they had enjoyed what they had heard, heard their answer, asked them if they were coming in the evening, said he would be glad if they would drop into his house to tea. They did, and he had a word with them about the master. The next Sunday it was the same, and at last those whom the sermons had not much impressed were brought to hear with other ears till, by and by, through the good old man's persuasive words and the good Lord's gracious work, they were converted to God. There is a fine hunting ground here, and indeed in every large congregation, for you who really want to do good. How many come into this house every morning and evening with no thought about receiving Christ? Oh, if you would all help me, you who love the Master, if you would all help me by speaking to your neighbors who sit near to you, how much might be accomplished. Never let anybody say, I came to the tabernacle three months, and nobody spoke to me. But do, by a sweet familiarity which ought always to be allowable in the house of God, seek with your whole heart to impress upon your friends the truth which I can only put into the ear, but which God may help you to put into the heart. Further, let me commend to you, dear friends, the art of buttonholing acquaintances and relatives. If you cannot preach to a hundred, preach to one. Get a hold of the man alone, and in love, quietly and prayerfully, talk to him. One, say you, well, is not one enough? I know your ambition, young man. You want to preach here, and these thousands. Be content, and begin with the ones. Your master was not ashamed to sit on the well and preach to one, and when he had finished his sermon, he had really done good work to the whole city of Sychar, for that one woman became a missionary to her friends. Timidity often prevents our being useful in this direction, but we must not give way to it. It must not be tolerated that Christ should be unknown through our silence, and sin is unwarned through our negligence. We must school and train ourselves to deal personally with the unconverted. We must not excuse ourselves, but force ourselves to the irksome task till it becomes easy. This is one of the most honorable modes of soul winning, and if it requires more than ordinary zeal and courage, so much the more reason for our resolving to master it. Beloved, we must win souls. 
We cannot live and see men damned. We must have them brought to Jesus. O then, be up in doing, and let none around you die unwarned, unwept, uncared for. A tract is a useful thing, but a living word is better. Your eye and face and voice will all help. Do not be so cowardly as to give a piece of paper where your own speech would be so much better. I charge you, attend to this for Jesus' sake. Some of you could write letters to your Lord and Master. To far off friends a few loving lines may be most influential for good. But like the men of Issachar who handled the pen, paper and ink are never better used than in soul winning. Much has been done by this method. Could not you do it? Will you not try? Some of you, at any rate, if you could not speak or write much, could live much. That is a fine way of preaching, that of preaching with your feet. I mean preaching by your life, in conduct, in conversation. That loving wife who weeps in secret over her infidel husband, but is always so kind to him. That dear child whose heart is broken by his father's blasphemy, but is so much more obedient than he used to be before conversion. That servant in whom the master swears, but whom he could trust with his purse and the gold uncounted in it. That man in trade who is sneered at as a Presbyterian, but who nevertheless is straight as a line and would not be compelled to do any dirty action. No, not for all the mint. These are the men and women who preach the best sermons. These are your practical preachers. Give us your holy living, and with your holy living as the leverage, we will move the world. Under God's blessing, we will find tongues, if we can, but we greatly need the lives of our people to illustrate what our tongues have to say. The gospel is something like an illustrated paper. The preacher's words are the letterpress, but the pictures are the living men and women who form our churches. And as when people take up such a newspaper, they very often do not read the letterpress, but they always look at the pictures. So in a church, outsiders do not come to hear the preacher, but they always consider, observe, and criticize the lives of the members. If you will be soul winners, then dear brethren and sisters, see that you live the gospel. I have no greater joy than this, that my children walk in the truth. One thing more, the soul winner must be a master of the art of prayer. You cannot bring souls to God if you do not go to God yourself. You must get your battle axe, your weapons of war, from the armory of sacred communication with Christ. If you are much alone with Jesus, you will catch his spirit. You will be fired with the flame that burned in his breast and consumed his life. You will weep with the tears that fell upon Jerusalem when he saw it perishing. And if you cannot speak so eloquently as he did, yet shall there be about what you say somewhat of the same power which in him thrilled the hearts and awoke the consciences of men. My dear hearers, especially you members of the church, I am always so anxious lest any of you should begin to lie upon your oars and take things easy in the matters of God's kingdom. 
There are some of you, I bless you, and I bless God at the remembrance of you, who are in season and out of season in earnest for winning souls, and you are the truly wise. But I fear there are others whose hands are slack, who are satisfied to let me preach, but do not themselves preach, who take these seats and occupy these pews and hope the cause goes well, but that is all they do. Oh, do let me see you all in earnest. A great host of nearly 5,000 members, what ought we not to do if we are all alive and all in earnest? But such a host, without the spirit of enthusiasm, becomes a mere mob, an unwieldy mass, out of which mischief grows and no good results arise. If you were all firebrands for Christ, you might set the nation on blaze. If you were all wells of living water, how many thirsty souls might drink and be refreshed? Beloved, there is one question I will ask, and I have done, and that is, are your own souls one? You cannot win others else. Are you yourself saved? My hearers, every one of you under that gallery there, and you behind here, are you yourself saved? What if this night you should have to answer that question to another and greater than I am? What if the bony finger of the last great orator should be uplifted instead of mine? What if his unconquerable eloquence should turn those bones to stone and glaze those eyes and make the blood chill in your veins? Could you hope in your last extremity that you were saved? If not saved, how will you ever be? When will you be saved, if not now? Will any time be better than now? The way to be saved is simply to trust in what the Son of Man did when he became man, and suffered punishment for all those who trust him. For all his people, Christ was the substitute. His people are those who trust him. If you trust him, he was punished for your sins and you cannot be punished for them. For God cannot punish sin twice, first in Christ, and then in you. If you trust Jesus, who now liveth at the right hand of God, you are this moment pardoned, and you shall forever be saved. Oh, that you would trust him now. Perhaps it may be now, or never with you. May it be now, even now, and then trusting in Jesus, dear friends, you will have no need to hesitate when the question is asked, Are you saved? For you can answer, Yes, that I am. For it is written, He that believeth in him is not condemned. Trust him then, trust him now, and then God help you to be a soul winner, and you shall be wise, and God shall be glorified. Chapter 13, page 88 Soul Saving is our one business. It is a grand thing to see a man thoroughly possessed with one master passion. Such a man is sure to be strong, and if the master principle be excellent, he is sure to be excellent too. The man of one subject is a man indeed. Lives with many aims are like water trickling through innumerable streams, none of which are wide enough or deep enough to float the merest cockle shell of a boat. But a life with one object 
is like a mighty river flowing between its banks, bearing to the ocean a multitude of ships and spreading fertility on either side. Give me a man, not only with a great object in his soul, but thoroughly possessed by it, his powers all concentrated, and himself on fire with vehement zeal for his supreme object, and you have put before me one of the greatest sources of power which the world can produce. Give me a man engrossed with holy love as to his heart, and filled with some masterly celestial thought as to his brain, and such a man will be known wherever his lot may be cast, and I venture to prophesy that his name will be remembered long after the place of his sepulchre shall be forgotten. Such a man was Paul. I am not about to set him upon a pedestal, that you may look at him and wonder, much less that you may kneel down and worship him as a saint. I mention Paul because what he was we ought every one of us to be, and though we cannot share in his office not being apostles, though we cannot share in his talents or in his inspiration, yet we ought to be possessed by the same spirit which actuated him, and let me also add, we ought to be possessed by it in the same degree. Do you demur to that? I ask you what there was in Paul, by the grace of God, which may not be in you, and what had Jesus done for Paul more than for you? He was divinely changed, and so have you been, if you have passed from darkness into marvelous light. He had much forgiven, and so have you also been freely pardoned. He is redeemed by the blood of the Son of God, and so have you been, at least so you profess to have been. He was filled with the Spirit of God, and so are you, if you are truly such as your Christian profession makes you out to be. Owing then your salvation to Christ, being debtors to the precious blood of Jesus, and being quickened by the Holy Spirit, I ask you why there should not be the same fruit from the same sowing. Why not the same effect from the same cause? Do not tell me that the apostle was an exception and cannot be set up as a rule or model for commoner folk, for I shall have to tell you that we must be such as Paul was if we hope to be where Paul is. Paul did not think that he had attained, neither that he was already perfect. Shall we think him to be so? So think him to be so as to regard him as inimitable, and so be content to fall short of what he was. Nay, verily, but let it be our incessant prayer, as believers in Christ, that we may be followers of him, so far as he followed Christ and wherein he failed to set his feet in his Lord's footprints, may we even outstrip him and be more zealous, more devoted to Christ than even the apostle of the Gentiles was. Oh, that the Holy Spirit would bring us to be like our Lord Jesus Christ himself. At this time I shall have to speak to you upon Paul's great object in life. He tells us it was to save some, We will then look into Paul's heart and show you a few of the great reasons which made him think it so important that some at least should be saved. Then thirdly, 
we will indicate certain of the means which the Apostle used to that end, and all with this view that you, my dear hearers, may seek to save some, that you may seek this because of potent reasons which you cannot understand, and that you may seek it with wise methods such as shall in the end succeed. 1. First then, brethren, what was Paul's great object in his daily life and ministry? He says it was to save some. There are ministers of Christ present at this hour, together with city missionaries, Bible women, Sunday school teachers, and other workers in my master's vineyard, and I make bold to inquire of each one of them, Is this your object in all your Christian service? Do you above all things aim to save souls? I am afraid that some have forgotten this grand object, but, dear friends, anything short of this is unworthy to be the great end of a Christian's life. I fear there are some who preach with the view of amusing men, and as long as people can be gathered in crowds, and their ears can be tickled, and they can retire pleased with what they have heard, the orator is content and folds his hands and goes back self-satisfied. But Paul did not lay himself out to please the public and collect the crowd. If he did not save them, he felt that it was of no avail to interest them. Unless the truth had pierced their hearts, affected their lives, and made new men of them, Paul would have gone home crying. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? It seems to be the opinion of a large party in the present day that the object of Christian effort should be to educate men. I grant you that education is in itself an exceedingly valuable thing, so valuable that I am sure the whole Christian church rejoices greatly that at last we have a national system of education which only needs to be carefully carried out in every child in this land will have the keys of knowledge in his hand. Whatever other price others may set upon ignorance, we are promoters of knowledge, and the more it can be spread, the better shall we be pleased. But if the church of God thinks that it is sent into the world merely to train the mental faculties, it has made a very serious mistake, for the object of Christianity is not to educate men for their secular callings, or even to train them in the politer arts or the more elegant professions or to enable them to enjoy the beauties of nature or the charms of poetry. Jesus Christ came not into the world for any of these things but he came to seek and to save that which was lost and on the same errand has he sent his church and she is a traitor to the master who sent her if she beguiled by the beauties of taste and art to forget that to preach Christ and Him crucified is the only object for which she exists among the sons of men. The business of the church is salvation. The minister is to use all means to save some. He is no minister of Christ if this be not the one desire of his heart. Missionaries sink far below their level when they are content to civilize. Their first object is to save. The same is true of the Sunday school teacher and of all other workers among children.
if they have merely taught the child to read, to repeat hymns, and so forth, they have not yet touched their true vocation. We must have the children saved. At this nail we must drive, and the hammer must come down upon this head always, that we might by all means save some, for we have done nothing unless some are saved. Paul does not even say that he tried to moralize men. The best promoter of morality is the gospel. When a man is saved, he becomes moral. He becomes more. He becomes holy. But to aim first at morality is altogether to miss the mark. And if we did attain it, as we shall not, yet we should not have attained that for which we were sent into the world. Dr. Chalmers' experience is a very valuable one to those who think that the Christian ministry ought to preach up more morality. For he says that in the first parish he preached morality and saw no good whatever arising out of his exhortations. But as soon as he began to preach Christ crucified, then there was a buzz and a stir and much opposition, but grace prevailed. He who wishes for perfumes must grow the flowers. He who desires to promote morality must have men saved. He who wants motion in a corpse should first seek life for it, and he who desires to see a rightly ordered life should first desire an inward renewal by the Holy Spirit. We are not to be satisfied when we have taught men their duties toward their neighbors, or even their duties toward God. This would suffice for Moses, but not for Christ. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. We teach men what they ought to be, but we do far more. By the power of the gospel applied by the Holy Ghost, we make them what they ought to be by the power of God's Spirit. We put not before the blind the things that they ought to see, but we open their eyes in the name of Jesus. We tell not the captives how free he ought to be, but we open the door and take away his fetters. We are not content to tell men what they must be, but we show them how this character can be obtained and how Jesus Christ freely presents all that is essential to eternal life to all those who come and put their trust in him. Now observe, brethren, if I or you or any of us or all of us shall have spent our lives merely in amusing men or educating men or moralizing men when we should come to give in our account at the last great day we shall be in a very sorry condition and we shall have but a very sorry record to render for of what avail will it be to a man to be educated when he comes to be damned of what service will it be to him to have been amused when the trumpets sound and heaven and earth are shaking and the pit opens wide her jaws of fire and swallows up the soul unsaved. Of what avail even to have moralized a man if still he is on the left hand of the judge and if still depart ye cursed shall be his portion. Blood red with the murder of men's souls will be the skirts of professing Christians unless the drift in end, in aim of all their work has been to save some. Oh, I beseech you, especially you dear friends who are working in Sunday and ragged schools 
and elsewhere, do not think that you have done anything unless the children's souls are saved. Settle it that this is the top and bottom of the business and throw your whole strength in the name of Christ and by the power of the eternal spirit into this object if by any means you may save some and bring some to Jesus that they may be delivered from the wrath to come. What did Paul mean by saying that he desired to save some? What is it to be saved? Paul meant by that nothing less than that some should be born again. For no man is saved until he is made a new creature in Christ Jesus. The old nature cannot be saved. It is dead and corrupt. The best thing that can be done with it is to let it be crucified and buried in the sepulchre of Christ. There must be a new nature implanted in us by the power of the Holy Ghost or we cannot be saved. We must be as much new creatures as if we had never been. We must come a second time as fresh from the hand of the eternal God as if we had been today molded by divine wisdom as Adam was in paradise. The great teacher's words are, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit, except a man be born again from above. He cannot see the kingdom of God. This then Paul meant, that men must be new creatures in Christ Jesus, that we may never rest till we see such a change wrought upon them. This must be the object of our teaching and of our praying, indeed the object of our lives, that some may be regenerated. He meant besides that, that some might be cleansed from their past iniquity through the merit of the atoning sacrifice of the Son of God. No man can be saved from his sin except by the atonement. Under the Jewish law it was written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. That curse has never been reversed, and the only way to escape from it is this. Jesus Christ was made a curse for us, as it is written. Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Now, he who believes in Jesus, who puts his hand upon the head of Jesus of Nazareth, the scapegoat of his people, has lost his sins. His faith is sure evidence that his iniquities were of old laid upon the head of the great substitute. The Lord Jesus Christ was punished in our room, and we are no longer obnoxious to the wrath of God. Behold, the sin-atoning sacrifice is slain and offered on the altar, and the Lord has accepted it, and is so well pleased that he has declared that whosoever believeth in Jesus is fully and eternally forgiven. Now we long to see men thus forgiven. We pine to bring the prodigal's head into the father's bosom, the wandering sheep to the good shepherd's shoulder, the lost piece of money into the owner's hand. And until this is done, nothing is done. I mean, brethren, nothing spiritually, nothing eternally, nothing that is worthy of the agony of a Christian's life, nothing that can be looked upon as deserving of an immortal spirit spending all its fires upon it. O Lord, our souls yearn to see Jesus rewarded 
by the salvation of the blood-bought. Aid us by thine effectual grace to lead souls to him. Once more, when the apostle wished that he might save some, he meant that, being regenerated and being pardoned, they might also be purified and made holy. For a man is not saved while he lives in sin. Let a man say what he will. He cannot be saved from sin whilst he is the slave of it. How is a drunkard saved from drunkenness whilst he still riots as before? How can you say that the swearer is saved from blasphemy while he is still profane? Words must be used in their true meaning. Now the great object of the Christian's work should be that some might be saved from their sins, purified and made white, and made examples of integrity, chastity, honesty, and righteousness as the fruit of the Spirit of God. And where this is not the case, we have labored in vain and spent our strength for naught. Now I do protest before you all that I have in this house of prayer never sought anything but the conversions of souls, and I call heaven and earth to witness, and your consciences too, that I have never labored for anything except this, the bringing of you to Christ, that I might present you at last unto God, accepted in the Beloved. I have not sought to gratify depraved appetites, either by novelty of doctrine or ceremonial, but I have kept up the simplicity of the gospel. I have kept back no part of the price of God's word from you, but I have endeavored to give you the whole counsel of God. I have sought out no fineries of speech, but have spoken plainly and right straight at your hearts and consciences. And if you be not saved, I mourn and lament before God that up to this day, though I have preached hundreds of times to you, yet I have preached in vain. If you have not closed in with Christ, if you have not been washed in the fountain filled with blood, you are waste pieces of soil from which no harvest has yet come. You tell me, perhaps, that you have been kept from the great many sins, that you have learned a great many truths coming here. So far, so good. But could I afford to live for this merely to teach you certain truths or keep you back from open sins? How could this content me if I knew all the while that you were still unsaved and must therefore after death be cast into the flames of hell? Nay, beloved, before the Lord, I count nothing to be worthy of your pastor's life and soul and energy but the winning of you to Christ. Nothing but your salvation can ever make me feel that my harsh desire is granted. I ask every worker here to see to this that he never turns aside from shooting at this target and at the center of this target too, namely that he may win souls for Christ and see them born to God and washed in the fountain filled with blood. Let the workers' hearts ache and yearn and their voices cry till their throats are hoarse, but let them judge that they have accomplished nothing whatever until, at last, in some cases, men are really saved. As the fisherman longs to take the fish in his net, as the hunter pants to bear home his soil, 
as the mother pines to clasp her lost child to her bosom. So do we faint for the salvation of souls, and we must have them, or we are ready to die. Save them, O Lord, save them for Christ's sake. But now we must leave that point for another. 2. The Apostle had great reasons for electing such an object in life. Were he here, I think he would tell you that his reasons were something of this kind, to save souls. If they be not saved, how is God dishonored? Did you ever think over the amount of dishonor that is done to the Lord our God in London in any one hour of the day? Take, if you will, this prayer hour, when we are gathered here ostensibly to pray. If the thoughts of this great assembly could all be read, how many of them would be dishonoring to the Most High? But outside of every house of prayer, outside of every place of worship of every kind, think of the thousands and tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands, who have all this day neglected the very semblance of the worship of the God who has made them, and who keeps them in being. Think of how many times the door of the Jinn Palace has swung on its hinges during this holy hour, how many times God's name has been blasphemed at the drinking bar. There are worse things than these, if worse can be, but I shall not lift the veil. Transfer your thoughts to an hour or so later, when the veil of darkness has descended. Shame will not permit us even to think of how God's name is dishonored in the persons of those whose first father was made after the image of God, but who pollute themselves to be the slaves of Satan and the prey of bestial lusts. Alas, alas, for this city is full of abominations, of which the apostle said, It is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Christian men and women, nothing but the gospel can sweep away the social evil. Vices are like vipers, and only the voice of Jesus can drive them out of the land. The gospel is the great broom with which to cleanse the filthiness of the city, and nothing else will avail. Will you not, for God's sake, whose name is every day profaned, seek to save some? If you will enlarge your thoughts and take in all the great cities of the continent, ah, uh, further still, take all the idolaters of China in Hindustan, the worshippers of the false prophet in Antichrist, what a mass of provocation have we here. What a smoke in Jehovah's nose must this false worship be. How he must often put his hand to the hilt of his sword as though he would say, Ah, I will ease me of mine adversaries. But he bears it patiently. Let us not become indifferent to his long suffering, but day and night let us cry unto him and daily let us labor for him, if by any means we may save some for his glory's sake. Think, dear friends, also of the extreme misery of this our human race. It would be a very dreadful thing if you could get any idea of the aggregate of the misery of London at the present moment in the hospitals and workhouses. Now, 
I would not say half a word against poverty. Wherever it comes, it is a bitter pill. But you will mark, as you notice carefully, that while a few are poor because of unavoidable circumstances, a very large mass of the poverty of London is the sheer and clear result of wastefulness, want of forethought, idleness, and, worst of all, of drunkenness. Ah, that drunkenness! That is the master evil. If drink could but be got rid of, we might be sure of conquering the very devil himself. The drunkenness created by the infernal liquor dens which plague spot the whole of this huge city is appalling. No, I did not speak in haste, or let slip a hasty word. Many of the drink houses are nothing less than infernal. In some respects they are worse, for hell has its uses as the divine protest against sin, but as for the gin palace there is nothing to be said in its favor. The vices of the age cause three-fourths of all the poverty. If you could look at the homes, the wretched homes where women will tremble at the sound of their husband's foot as he comes home, where little children will crouch down with fear upon their little heap of straw because the human brute who calls himself a man will come reeling home from the place where he has been indulging his appetites. If you could look at such a sight and remember that it will be seen ten thousand times over tonight, I think you will say, God help us, by all means to save some. Since the great acts to lay at the root of the deadly upas tree is the gospel of Christ, may God help us to hold that axe there and to work constantly with it till the huge trunk of the poison tree begins to rock to and fro and we get it down and London is saved and the world is saved from the wretchedness and the misery which now drip from every bow. Again, dear friends, the Christian has other reasons for seeking to save some and chiefly because of the terrible future of impenitent souls. That veil which hangs before me is not penetrated by every glance, but he who sees has his eye touched with heavenly eye salve, sees through it. And what does he see? Myriads upon myriads of spirits in dread procession passing from their bodies, and passing whither? Unsaved, unregenerate, unwashed in precious blood, we see them go up to the solemn bar, whence in silence the sentence comes forth, and they are banished from the presence of God, banished to horrors which are not to be described nor even to be imagined. This alone is enough to cause us distress day and night. This decision of destiny has about it a terrible solemnity, but the resurrection trumpet sounds, those spirits come forth from their prison house. I see them returning to earth, rising from the pit to the bodies in which they lived, and now I see them stand, multitudes, multitudes upon multitudes, in the valley of decision. And he comes, sitting on a great white throne, with the crown upon his head, and the books before him, and there they stand as prisoners at the bar. My vision now perceives them, how they tremble, how they shiver like aspen leaves in the gale. Whither can they flee? 
Rocks cannot hide them. Mountains will not open their bowels to conceal them. What shall become of them? The dread angel takes the sickle, reaps them as the reaper cuts up the tares for the oven, and as he gathers them, he casts them down, where despair shall be their everlasting torment. Woe is me! My heart sinks as I see their doom and hear the terrible cries of their too late awakening. Save some, O Christians. By all means, save some. By yonder flames, in outer darkness, in the weeping, in the wailing, in the gnashing of teeth, seek to save some. Let this, as the case of the Apostle, be your great, your ruling object in life, that by all means you may save some. For, oh, if they be saved, observe the contrast. Their spirits mount to heaven, and after the resurrection their bodies ascend also, and there they praise redeeming love. No fingers more nimble on the harp strings than theirs, no notes more sweet than theirs as they sang unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion for ever and ever. What bliss to see the once rebellious brought home to God and heirs of wrath made possessors of heaven. All this is involved in salvation. Oh, that myriads may come to this blessed state. Save some, oh, save some at least. Seek that some may be therein glory. Behold your master. He is your pattern. He left heaven to save some. He went to the cross, to the grave, to save some. This was the great object of his life, to lay down his life for his sheep. He loved his church and gave himself for her, that he might redeem her unto himself. Imitate your master. Learn his self-denial and his blessed consecration, if by any means you may save some. My soul yearneth that I personally may save some, but broader is my desire than that. I would have every one of you, my beloved friends, associated here in church fellowship to become spiritual parents of children for God. Oh, that every one of you might save some. Yes, my venerable brethren, you are not too old for service. Yes, my young friends, ye young men and maidens, ye are not too young to be recruits in the king's service. If the kingdom is ever to come to our Lord, and come it will, it never will come through a few ministers, missionaries, or evangelists preaching the gospel. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 
1097-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.